Thank you for listening to this sermon from Redeemer Church. We pray that as you listen to this message, that your heart would be softened, your ears would be opened, and your affections for Jesus would be stirred. We pray that through the Holy Spirit, you would look more like Jesus and know Him more as we strive to be a gospel-centered, disciple-making family together in Wichita Falls. Redeemer for a while. You know that we like to go through books of the Bible here uh, as the church, and uh, we've been going through the Gospel of John for quite, quite a long while. And so since uh, August of 21, and we're just now to John chapter 18. And if you've been with us uh, for this semester or this year, rather, this calendar year, you would notice that, uh, well, we haven't been in John recently. Uh, that's because we've been going through a mini-series, uh, just a short series on what does it mean for the church to be disciple makers. And hopefully this has been an encouraging and edifying time for you as it has been for me as we've taken a break from uh, John chapter uh, 18 for a season. But I'm so excited to get back into it because uh, one of the great things about going through the Bible uh, section by section, verse by verse, is that you cannot skip some of the hard passages of the Bible. Some of the hard teachings of the Word, whenever you are going through section by section, verse by verse, it's, it's really hard to pass over some of the, the doctrines that make us uncomfortable, right? Uh, because you're like, oh, why did he, I, I was looking forward to that. I was looking forward to what, what the preacher guy was going to say about this section of the word, and then he just skipped over it. And so the, the word kind of acts as a governor to say, well, what is the revealed word of God, and how should we live our lives accordingly? And to, today, what we're going to do is we're going to go through a topic that is very, very uh, unpopular for us Bible Belt Westerners for the last couple of decades now, which is the wrath of God. Full stop. All right, just see how that sets on everyone. Yeah, the, the wrath of God. This is something that we can't avoid. You might be saying, Cody, how, how does that show up in this passage? Well, I hope, uh, my hope is to, to show you uh, that. Um, R.C. Sproul, whenever he was preaching through this, he told a story that has stuck in my head so much I got to share it uh, with y'all. He, he was talking about uh, a, a debate show, which this was more popular back in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, not so much now. Now we just YouTube everything. Uh, but uh, he was talking about a debate show between a Christian apologist and, and, and an atheist uh, apologist. And he said that the atheist apologist was winning the debate was winning the debate, and the Christian knew it. Like, uh, uh, the Christian didn't have a good answer for some of the objections or some of the, uh, the falsehoods that the, uh, that the atheist was bringing up. 
And so, and, and an act of desperation, which is not a good debate tool, according to RC, he goes, he turns to the crowd and he looks at the crowd and says, all right, well, how many of y'all actually believe in the existence of God? And he said the entire crowd, just about, about 99.99% of the crowd all raised their hand. And he says, there, you lose. And, <laughs> and I was like, again, not a good debate strategy. It didn't really prove anything. It was like, we're actually here for intellectual exercise. And this didn't show any. This was just, this was mob rule right here. That's not, that's not fair. But what R.C. said is this lady who is the militant atheist really missed her opportunity. What, because he said what she should have said at that moment is, all right, all right, well, how many of y'all believe in the God of wrath from the Old Testament that would destroy cities and, and wage war and, and do child sacrifice? How, how many of y'all believe that stuff? And he said he missed, missed the opportunity because we're at a point in our cultural, uh, and we're at a cultural moment, rather, of just understanding that aren't we all in favor of God, but maybe not in favor of the God of wrath, or even the idea of a God of wrath. And so what I hope to show you from this passage today is three things about the wrath of God. Number one, the wrath of God is warranted. According to the Bible and according to Christian doctrine, the wrath of God is warranted. Number two, the wrath of God is always controlled. And number three, that the wrath of God was ultimately absorbed. It was ultimately absorbed. And so, number one, the wrath of God is warranted. Let's look at our passage and see if we can unpack some of, uh, some of this truth. In the first three verses of this passage, we see highlighted uh, the presence of a wide range of people. There's a whole bunch of people represented that's going to do what? They're going to arrest Jesus. They're going to um, eventually mock him, eventually slap him, eventually spit upon him, eventually have him flogged and then crucified. And so this is the beginning of this entire unfolding leading up to, leading up to the crucifixion of the Son of God. And in verse 3, look what it says. It says, Judas, Judas, we all know who that is, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers of the chief priest and the Pharisees were coming with him. Uh, all went with lanterns and torches and weapons. I read that because I want to point out who is represented here. You have represented Jew and Gentile alike. You have the Pharisees and you also have a band of Roman soldiers. You have represented uh, upper class and lower class. The Pharisees were cultural elites. They're at the top of their society. And then also the working class was probably the soldiers. You have, you have uh, the religious and irreligious. You have those that, believe, that at some point said that they believed in Jesus and some point said that they did not believe in Jesus. Why bring all of this up? I bring it all up because all of humanity is represented in this. All you, me, everyone, a Jew and Gentile alike, blue collar, white collar, uh, pagan, uh, religious, irreligious, everyone is represented in those that are coming after Jesus right here. And that's important, that's so important to, to, to point out. Because this points to the Bible's teaching about something. It, t- it points us to the Bible's teaching that all of us, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our, in our lives, are enemies 
of Christ. We are all, the Bible teaches that we are all enemies of Christ. She's like, Cody, where? All right, let's just go to it. <laughs> let's go to it. Romans chapter 5. This is Paul's greatest work on the explanation of the good news of the gospel. And he, and he does it over a progressive revelation. He gets to the point of, uh, in, in Romans chapter 8, where you should understand, you should have faith at this point. There's no, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None whatsoever. But there was bad news. Genesis, or, or Genesis, Romans 1, 2, and 3, that's bad, that's really bad news. And it's explaining the bad news, and it should be at the backdrop to make the good news actually really great news. And in Genesis, or I keep on saying that, everything, everything is Genesis to me for some, for, for some reason. But in Romans, Romans chapter 5, it says this, but God shows his love for us in this, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Go two verses over. Gen or <laughs> keep on, keep at it, keep at it. I'm just going to say it. I'm not going to correct myself anymore. I'm just going to keep on rolling, all right? Genesis 5.10, Romans 5.10 says this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that you are reconciled shall you be saved or sanctified by his life saying you're enemies of God. Apart from the finished work of Jesus, we're enemies. We're at odds. We're at odds with God. And you might be saying, Cody, I'm, I'm not an enemy of God. I don't, I don't hate God. I, I, I don't oppose him. I, I, I love him. I love him. You might not even be all on board with all the Christian doctrines, but most people in this room, most people in this town, most people in this country all say that I have a firm, strong understanding in the existence of God. And if you are, if, if you're not an ostrich that kind of keeps his head in the sand about some things that are going on culturally as we're, as we're moving throughout uh, society, uh, back in the early 2000s, early 2000s, there was a big militant atheist movement. There's a big militant atheist movement. And this is when all the debate shows were going on and stuff uh, before YouTube was uh, taking over in, in the later 2010 or 2000s. But uh, there's a big movement, but now that whole movement has essentially died. Now people that were former militant atheists now believe in the existence of a God. Most of them say that there is a God, but the problem is this. It goes right back to what R.C. said at the, at the very beginning, talking about the debate. The problem is we're all making up our own God, some from the Bible, some from the Koran, some from other things, some from just our, our inner thinking and what we think is appropriate for a God to do. We're making up a God and saying that's the real God. Right? It, it, like that's what's going on in our culture is now everyone has their own personalized American version of God. And, and this is a problem. This is a problem because apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from regeneration, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you through the finished work of Jesus and your faith in the gospel. Apart from that, you are still at odds with God. You are still enemies, enemies of God hatred with him. You say, Cody, no, you're wrong. You got my friend all wrong. Uh, that person that you think you just described, you didn't describe, you didn't describe them well. Well, let me try to communicate this to you even more clearly. The reality 
that we are all enemies of God is made clear by this sense of the human heart hates, hates, hates anything that threatens your self-identity or your self-sovereignty. The human heart absolutely hates anything or anyone that threatens their sense of self-identity or self-sovereignty. You can't say that, right? You can't, you can't say that about me. Uh, you, don't, you don't understand what I've been through. In, in what, think about the things that really make you upset. What are the things that make you upset here in this life? What are the things that make you mad or that make you angry? Uh, I'll describe it this way. Uh, I remember with my first kid, Evan, Evan Clear, uh, I was figuring out babies now, uh, or back then, and I feel like I still have a long way to go about learning about babies uh, with a four-month-old in my house. But this was about the time that she was seven months. And I remember telling her, we were at, at our house, and she started walking up to the three-prong plug on the side of the wall. And first kid, so you don't have like the little outlet safety things everywhere because I figured you'd progressively get there eventually. And she was just becoming mobile. And so I said, oh, oh, Evan, hey, no, come over here to Dada. No, that's, we don't do that. We don't touch that thing. We don't stick your little pinky into that thing. And she looked at me, this child that I love, that I've taken care of forever, that she's never been hungry because of her mom, and she's never, you know, uh, she's never had a dirty diaper, mostly because of her mom, and, and like, uh, she's never uh, wanted anything, she's never lacked, she's never cried very long, because we didn't believe in crying it out back then. Um, she hasn't cried very long, we always held, and we always held her anytime she needed something. She looked at me, the one that's provided, and goes, no. I think I'm going to go stick my finger right over here. She sped up towards the thing that I told her not to do. She sped up towards it. This is seven months old. What kind of rebellion is this? What's going on? I, I, I never wronged her. And we, we weren't having a good day. We were laughing, telling jokes earlier, uh, earlier right before this. And then all of a sudden, I give her one set of instruction that goes against her own heart's wishes. And she said, forget this guy. I'm going to go do the thing that I want to do. This is in us from a very young age. What in the world? What in the world is this? Uh, what is this thing? Because what does this illustrate? It, it, it illustrates that, man, anything that threatens the thing that we ultimately want to do, the thing that feels natural to us, the thing that, that drives our uh, motivation or that captures our imagination, if we hear a uh, do not do that thing, do not do that thing, we say no. No, the very fact that the three-pronged plug was forbidden is what drove my daughter to it even more. She ran, she ran to it. And what's, I bring all that up because think about Jesus for a second. Jesus walks onto the earth and says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he starts healing everyone and he starts telling people, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That ultimately your life is about me. Everything that Jesus represents is the thing that we don't like. He threatens our self-sovereignty more than anything else because he tells us your life is about me. Uh, you don't get to do the things that you want to do. You should obey and worship and follow me, says the Lord. 
And that, that is the thing that we hate the most. We hate the most someone saying, oh, it's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's not about uh, what I, I want to do in this situation or who I want to sleep with. It's, it's not about me. How dare you say something other than what is in my heart? And Jesus represents all of those things. He represents every single bit of those things. And so what do we do? What do we do? We say, well, my Jesus isn't like that. Your Jesus might be some Old Testament stuff, and your Jesus might be, you know, like a Sodom and Gomorrah thing over here. But my Jesus is kind and compassionate. It isn't harsh to anyone. Let's everyone in. That's, that's my Jesus. So, so what are we doing? We're, we're taking the scriptures and saying, let's ignore this, and let's choose this. Likings, and then what are we doing? We're creating our own God. And the very fact that we feel like we have to create our own God shows us that we hate the God that does exist. I'm going to say that again. The very fact that you and I feel this natural inclination to create a God in our own liking proves that we hate the God that is revealed in the Bible. It shows it. It proves it. That, that whatever comes, doesn't come natural to our own hearts whenever we think about God, we say, Let's make sure that we have a God like this. And you know what that's doing? That means that we're ultimately wanting to worship ourselves. We want to worship a God made in our own image, not in the way that he reveals himself in the Bible. And this is what our passage is trying to unveil to us. Whenever we're thinking about the wrath of God, we need to be thinking through the lens of who am I in light of this God? Who am I in light of this God? So let me put it to you another way. Uh, what are the things that ultimately scare you? What are the things that give you the, the strongest sense of shame, the strongest sense of guilt? What are the things that uh, make you feel like your life is out of control? Whenever we don't have a plan, right? Whenever we don't have a plan, we don't know what's before us. You know, roller, roller coasters, inside roller coasters are a whole lot more scarier than outside roller coasters. You know what I'm saying? To lighten this up a little bit. Outside roller coasters, you know what you're getting yourself into. It's like, all right, three loop-de-loops, corkscrew thing, all right, upside down. Don't like how long they're upside down. Okay, but okay, I trust it. But you ever been to a, an, uh, you know, Universal Studios or something like that whenever uh, there's an inside roller coaster? You're like, I don't know what's in there. <laughs> uh, and your level of anxiety is a little bit higher, right? Because the plan isn't laid out for you whatsoever. And in the same way, all the things that make us angry, all the things that make us feel shame, feel guilty, do you, you know what those things are? They're ultimately found in Jesus. Jesus holds up the universe by the word of his power. Jesus knows the number of hairs on your head, your beginning and your end. And he says, submit to me. Jesus knows the inner workings of your thoughts. He knows everything, everything about you. The thing that would put you ultimately to, shame, the, to the greatest shame, the inner workings, the nastiest thoughts in your mind, Jesus knows them all. This is why we hate him. Because this is a God that we cannot control. The New Testament is presenting the Bible in its entirety is presenting a God that is outside of our control. And we hate that. And we hate it to the core. 
because we want to have some sense of control over our lives. And this is, this is why we're under this settled opposition, this settled justice of God, because we're enemies of God, filled with hatred in our heart towards him. And you say, Cody, I, I still just dis- still disagree. I think God grades on a curve. Don't you realize, don't you realize that the purpose of the cross, the greatest injustice that the world has ever known, the greatest injustice the world has ever known is a perfect man dying in the place of filthy, murderous sinners. And because that is the greatest injustice that the world has ever known, God can't take your sin, your rebellion, your lies, my lies, my rebellion, lightly? He decided to lay it all out on, the, on his son, and so he can't take this lightly. We cannot, listen to me, we cannot make up a God that we control by our own theological preferences and then say, that's the God that the Bible reveals. We have to unpack it We have to unpack it according to the general revelation, the special revelation of God's word, and then say, we have to deal with him. We have to deal with this God. And listen, uh, I'm not super pumped up about (laughs) about the wrath of God. But again, this is the, the beauty of God's word and how it's unveiled to us. We have to understand, we have to understand Uh, all the aspects of how God reveals himself, especially that of the wrath of God. Again, creating a God that we can control reveals the true hatred of a God that we can't control. So we try to to do several things with the wrath of God. And I want to stop a pitfall real quick that we are typically thinking about. Whenever you think of wrath, you think of your wrath God is not like us, though. That's what Psalm chapter 50 tries to tell us. You thought, well, your major mistake is thinking that God was like a man. God, God's wrath is not like my wrath and not like your wrath. He's not cranky. It's not like Mr. Darby on that Ken Peel uh, show, right? Y'all are about to feel my wrath. You say your name right. Balake. Balake. Yeah, anyone? Okay, no? All right. <laughs> uh, God is not cranky. He's not like Mr. Darby. He's, he, he hasn't, he's, not flying, he's not flying off the handle. He's not like this at all. He's controlled. He has, this sense of, he has this sense of settledness. Look at our passage. Everything that's going on in here, it says that Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen to him. And then he asked the questions to the mob coming towards him. Uh, if there's any time to pour out the wrath of God, it would have been then, Right? when the representation of all of humanity comes to the the perfect spotless son of God and says, we're here to bound you, to torture you, to ultimately kill you. And what, how in the world does he not just unleash all the wrath of God on him right now? Why? Because he's always in control. So as we look through this, we have to remember, we have to remember that the warrant of God's wrath is this, that we deserve it. Because ultimately, we're an enmity between God. And the beauty of the resurrection will never take root in your heart unless you see the backdrop of what you ultimately deserve because of your sin. And so, uh, 
the wrath of God is warranted, and I already alluded to this, but here comes my second point, that the wrath of God is always controlled. Like I said, he is totally in charge of this entire situation. He's, he's asking the people, he's asking the people the questions, and they, res, and they respond, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And then something really weird happens. You notice this? Something really crazy happens where he responds, I am he. Now, the English translation does, does something that's kind of peculiar, peculiar right here. It added, I am he. But really, it's the, the Hebrew word or the word in Aramaic that he says is ego. Um, he says, I am, which is uh, the, the punctuation here and the grammar is not, is not accurate, but it's theologically accurate. He responds with I am the same way that he responded earlier in the Gospel of John, which they all knew exactly what this meant. He was claiming for himself the name of the God of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. He was saying I am. And whenever they heard this, I love what the commentators said. The commentators said for a brief second... The veil covering Jesus' infinite glory and power was lifted. The same power that was with God in the burning bush. The same power that divided the Red Sea. The same power that brought down fire on Mount Carmel. The same power that resides in the Holy of Holies. Uh, uh, cut out of the person of Jesus. And you know what they did? They fell down to the ground. He said that he was the great I am and fell immediately down to the ground. The craziest thing about this passage is that they got up and Jesus asked them the question again. And it didn't say how they answered him. But I would imagine to be like Jesus of Nazareth, you know, like just terrified, terrified to say it one more time. Because the glory and the infinite power of God had broken free out of the person of the the Imago uh, uh, of Jesus, our Lord. This is crazy. This is absolutely crazy that the the glory and the power of God broke free for just a second. And then he responded with counseling questions always. I love our Lord. He's always giving people the opportunity to respond. He's always giving people uh, the, the, the chance to repent. And so he's saying, who... Who do you seek? Dear people that want to to crucify me and to kill me and to shut me up, those that, that hate me, I want you to admit it. I want you to declare to the world who you seek to crucify. And so they say it again. Jesus of Nazareth. And this is this is wild. I, I mentioned this earlier, but I want to re, revisit it. Psalm 50, verse. 21 says the things that I have done I have uh, and I have been silent you thought that I was like yourself but I am not I am not like you and so the control of the second person of the trinity here as as the power of God bursts out of him with the declaration of his name he doesn't dish out wrath here why because he's always in control He always has a plan. You want to know why Jesus can be patient with you, Christian? You want to know what Jesus is patient with all of us right now? Because he's always working out his purposeful plan for your life. 
You think your rebellion is a waste of time. You think your, your ignoring of God is a waste of time. And Jesus, our Lord and Master, uh, who upholds everything by the word of his power, is saying, this is part of the grand story that I'm telling through you. He's always in control. And we see this so clearly in this passage. He's not cranky. He's not, he, he's not ill-tempered. He has a plan. He has a purpose for his wrath. What is this plan and purpose? It's to be absorbed. It's to be absorbed. And so it's interesting that in this passage it says that he looks to Peter and he says, put your sword away after it says the guy who he cut his ear off. Why did he do that, by the way? Just a quick aside for all those that are struggling with trusting that the Bible is actually true. Malchus? Who's Malchus? I don't know. We know it's a, he's one of the servants. Why did they mention him here? Is Malchus a follower of Jesus later on? Does he show up in the book of Acts? Does he come up in Revelation? Is he ever mentioned again? The answer is no. But he is brought up because the gospel of John, the, the author, John, is saying, hey, you want to know for sure that this happened? Malchus is his name. He's alive. He's down by the street corner. Go talk to him about it. That's why, that's why his name is right here. Because the Bible is written in such a way so that you and I will know that this is written to a first century audience so that they would believe that it's true and that it, and it can be corroborated as all of its testimonies are true for the church. And so that's a quick aside about who Malchus was, but he tells him to put up his sword. And in, in the book of Matthew, it says that, he says, Peter, don't you know that I could call a legion of, air, of angels to come down? This would be so easy for me to do. But no, I have a plan. I am patient. I am in control. And my wrath will come out at the appropriate time. And what does he say? He tells, he asks Peter, should I not drink the cup of the Father that the Father has given to me? The cup, what is the cup? The cup in the Old Testament is always represented as, as judgment. Sometimes in the, in the Old Testament or in, in olden days, the way to execute someone was to give them a cup of poison, okay? And so they were supposed to drink a cup of poison, and that was the wrath of the people or the wrath of the one executing, executing the person. And so the cup here is represented as the cup of wrath. But he doesn't say this. He doesn't even say the cup of God or the cup of wrath. He says the cup of the Father. Does Jesus speak well of the Father whenever he's here on earth? Does he speak of him only in wrathful terms or no? No, he teaches the people to pray our Father in heaven. He teaches them that, that God, Yahweh, uh, the, the, the Trinity, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the person of salvation that is in charge and executing everything, the good God who all gifts come down from, he's saying this is his cup, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son and make a wretch, me and you, his treasure. The Father is only represented in good, healthy, beautiful terms. And yet right here we see it's the cup of the wrath of the Father. The wrath of the Father right here that we have. And so you might be saying, Cody, this is where my theology 
hits a roadblock because I don't know how to, I don't know how to harmonize the Bible. I don't know how to harmonize the idea of there is a vengeful, wrathful God that hates sin and will judgment, will judge it. But also he, over here, he is compassionate and lowly and whosoever will can come. How can I harmonize the two? How can I harmonize the two? Well, imagine, um, imagine there was two brothers, okay? And the brothers, or there's an older brother and the younger brother. And the, the older brother looks at the younger brother and says this. He says, man, little bro, I love you so much. I'm going to show you how much I love you. There's a bonfire over here. And then he runs, takes off, sprinting, jumps into the bonfire. Look how much I love you. I jumped in a bonfire for you, bro. This is, this is how much I love you. And we look at that and say, Cody, did you get that illustration right? Because that's weird. That's weird. It, uh, that doesn't show me that you love me. Uh, uh, jumping over and dying? How, how, does that, how does that show me how much you love me? And see, that's a straw man argument that we've internalized here in the West. I'm just like, oh, Jesus just, he just had to die on the cross, you know. God just wanted him to, just to show how much he loved us, obviously, right? Obviously, God loves us so much that he died on the cross for our sins. Don't you get it? Don't you feel loved by him bleeding and dying on the cross? No. No, let's change up the analogy so that it actually makes sense. Imagine an older brother and younger brother. The younger brother can't take care of himself, and he's in a burning building. He's in a burning building. And the younger brother runs into the fire, right? Just like before, but he ran into the fire to save his little brother. And he grabs his little brother and he throws him. He throws him to the fireman and then he perishes in the flames himself. Does that express love? Does that express love? Of course it does. Why? Why? Because you have to recognize the inherent danger that someone is in for an act to be seen as loving. And what we have done in the West is we have taken away the wrath of God from our thinking of Christianity. And because we've taken away the wrath of God, the cross doesn't make any sense to us. We're just like, I don't get it. I don't get it. But don't you get it today? Today, you are under the judgment of God. You are under the wrath of God, the separation from God. And this puts you in a whole lot of peril apart, apart from the loving action of Jesus dying in your place. This is the importance. What Jesus had to do is he had to drink the cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's wrath that you should have drank and that I should have drank because of our sin. But Jesus ultimately was our substitute. He was our substitute. He stood in our place. He was our covering. And what was he saving us from? He was saving us from God's judicial opposition against evil and injustice in the world. This is what Jesus was living for. This is what he was coming to correct. This is what he was coming to sacrifice for. We have to understand the backdrop of our rebellion against God. Our rebellion against God puts us in a very peculiar place, a very treacherous place. And only, and only through the finished work of Jesus is there the way of escape. What did Jesus say on the cross? 
What did he say on the cross, friends? He said a lot of things. Whenever you read all the Gospels, one of the things he said was another counseling question. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Church, that's for you to respond to. That's for you to respond to. You're supposed to say, for me. He was forsaken, he was forsaken for me. He got the forsakenness up on that cross that I should have got. He's the one, he's dying in my place. He's covering over my sins. He is paying for my penalty. That's what Jesus is doing up there. He's dying for me. And that's how we have to respond today. That's, how, that's what we have to bring into our theological closet. We cannot separate the compassion from God from the wrath of God. The only way that God is both just and the justifier of sinners is through the cross of Jesus. And if you do not see, listen, if you do not see yourself in the mob, if you do not see yourself in the mob, you, if you don't see yourself carrying, act, carrying out the greatest act of injustice the same, at the same level of the injustices that you hate today, then the cross and the love of God will never actually be powerful for you. It will just be a religious Christian American idea. And it will never have the power to say, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's none that I desire besides you. My, though my heart and my life may fail, you are the, my portion and desire of my heart forever and ever and ever. Only this has the power to bring life transformation in your life. Only faith here with the backdrop of God's wrath that you rightfully deserve, with the love of God and the finished work of Jesus on the cross ever makes sense to you. So how do we apply this? I want to apply it by instructing you in thinking through your life right now. Thinking through your life. Christian, look at me. My application's for Christians. Uh, my, I'll give a brief application for those that, that feel far from God right now. Throw yourselves in the mercy of God. Throw yourselves in the mercy of God. Wrestle with the harmonization that the New Testament presents. That he is both just and justifier. He is both the, the, the God of wrath and the God of grace. And they work together in perfect complementarity. For those that are Christians and are looking at their life right now and struggling to have faith, struggling to have faith in certain areas of, of your doctrine or of your theology, of like, man, I just don't get this about Jesus. I, I, I don't get this uh, about the cross. I, I, I don't get this about the Bible. I, I need help. Help me to understand. Or you might be way more practical than that. You might be in this room and just saying, I don't understand what God is doing. Sure, I believe intellectually that God is good, but I don't actually feel like he's good in my life. I feel like the, the circumstances that I'm going through, I feel like the suffering that my children are going through, I feel like the internal struggles that I have struggled with for, for a long season, maybe for decades, represents God. Yes, I hear the good news of the Bible, but I don't experience good news in my life. Listen, my call to you is internalize and wrestle with this hard doctrine that the good news of the gospel is only good news because of the backdrop of God's wrath that you rightfully deserve. And listen, only then, as I said earlier, will you have the power to live a transformed life that is steady no matter what you're going through. Because listen to me, the Lord is so kind to us as Christians. 
Here at Redeemer Church, we say that we're a gospel-centered, disciple-making family. You want to know how the Lord most of the time wants to turn you into a disciple-maker? Is by you living faithfully, you living a life of faith no matter what you're going through. Because listen to me, those that are far from God, those that don't subscribe to the Christian faith, those that don't want anything to do with Jesus, look at me, look at me, church. Those are not reading their Bibles. They're not going to read their Bible. But what they are looking at is how you, confessional Christian, live your life in the midst of deep suffering. And that's how the Lord is forming us into disciple makers, by just putting our faith on display to those around us. That's what the Lord is doing. He's putting your faith on display. How are you going to live your life in the midst of the miscarriage? How are you going to live your life in the midst of the hardship or struggle? How are you going to live your life at the loss of a parent? How are you going to live your life when the deepest pains of life come? The Lord is making you a disciple maker. And listen, I don't know. I can't, I can't even go down the room and say you're going through this suffering because of this. You're going through this suffering because of this. But I know why all of you are not going through suffering. It's not because God doesn't care about you. It's not because God doesn't love you. And it's not because God doesn't have a purpose. Because look at the cross. The cross, the greatest injustice, the greatest amount of suffering the world has ever known. What has God done? He's turned it into the greatest story in the history of histories. The greatest revelation of God our Savior. He's done that with the injustice, the seemingly injustice of the cross. What can he do with your life? Rhythmic, faithful, obedience, marveling at the purposes of God as you live your life turns you into a gospel-centered, disciple-making family member. And it's hard. But we do it together. Together, side by side, arm in arm. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And my hope, my hope for all of us this morning is that we just wrestle with this reality. The Lord is telling a grand story through your life and through my life. There's parts of my story that I wouldn't have chose if I had a multiple choice uh, option of how my life was going to go. I imagine you say the exact same thing. But what if God, in his infinite glory, is so creative with this room He's saying, I'm going to show the world just how great I am through your faithfulness to follow Jesus in the midst of the deepest, darkest pains of this life. Listen, that gets the world's attention whenever we say, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's none that I desire besides you, though my heart and my flesh may fail. You are the desire of my heart. And my portion forever and ever. Redeemer, grab hold of it. Bring it in. And live. And live. Let's pray.